I'd like you to turn to two verses of Scripture, Matthew 16 and Acts chapter 2. Now, Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus makes this remark about the church. He said, And I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is, his church. Now, the word for church means assembly, it's ecclesia. It's a gathering together of believers of a common faith. Not everybody has a common faith, but they gather anyway. The Bible talks about wheat and tares being in the same room, the same group. But Jesus said, I will build my assembly. So I wanna talk tonight in response to the last two Wednesday nights that I've spoken. One was, Lord, thank you for your word. Last time I said, Lord, thank you for your spirit. Tonight I like to say, Lord, thank you for your church. Amen. Amen. I am really glad, probably more than you all are, that I'm a part of a church. I really am. And I, I like that. I'm glad about it because I understand something about it, what it means, and how important it is in a Christian's life. In Acts chapter 2, I believe this is when the church started. On the day of Pentecost, and on the day of Pentecost, Peter, because of the outpouring of the Spirit and the astonishing display of what was going on, many men came and inquired, what does all of this mean? Peter, of course, preached a sermon. And it says all the way at the end of the chapter in verse 41, then they gladly received his word and were baptized. And the same day there were added unto the church about 3,000 souls. That was quite a day. You'd have to admit that. If there was such a demonstration of the power of the word to save people, that in one day 3,000 people responded to it. This is a whole new thing here. Nothing like this had ever happened before. It was prophesied, it was predicted, but it now is seen, the day of Pentecost, and a church was brought forth. A church was called a body, a metaphor showing association or the body of Christ. And this is a whole lot of the topic, much of the topic of the book of Acts. is the history of the church and, and how God poured out his spirit. And you notice he goes on to say in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They did four things. Now, the apostles' doctrine was also new. We're not speaking of the law and the legal sacrifices and all the observances of the Old Testament law. That's set aside as a way to be right. Man cannot then or now have a right relationship with God by doing a lot of things. Man did a lot of things and never made him righteous, so those things were set aside as a way to be right with God, and Jesus made possible a way, and the only way we can be right with God is by faith. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and not only that, but that God is responsive to his people, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So on this day, a whole new beginning started, and a group of men called apostles, those who were sent forth 
comes on the scene with a doctrine that had never been declared before. They didn't know much about it then. It was new, but it began to grow. And anyway, they took what they had. The Bible said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. As a result, great fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat or food with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That would be a wonderful atmosphere to bring a lost soul that just got saved into, where people were glad, people were happy. They didn't need money to have that. They didn't need possessions to have what they had here. In fact, many of those that had all of that sold it so that ones that had nothing could have something. It was a whole change of the nature of man. Again, this is all new, brand new, never been seen before, but this is a picture of the church the way it should be. At the end, the Bible said it's going to be a glorious church. It's going to be full of people that are so refined by the work of God, there will be without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. It's God's church. Now, historically, down through the years, there's been a lot of debate about the church, what it is, when it started, and what it actually means. For years, the Catholics declared that the, the church was worldwide or universal, and it was visible. It was a universal, visible church all over the world, and that they believed that they were the church, and that any salvation would have to come through the church. Therefore, if you're not a Catholic, you can't be saved. Now, Luther, in the Reformation of the 1500s, Luther had a revelation. He had been discommunicated from the Catholic Church, was no longer acceptable to them, but he knew he was saved. He knew he was right with God, even though he wasn't a part of that system. And so he came up with the idea that the church really then, because the kingdom of God is within you, then the church is an invisible thing. It's universal and it's invisible. And we came to label that as a mystical church. And there's been a lot of damage that's been done to the church because of that idea. Because people today, Christians, see two churches. There's the big, unseen, worldwide, mystical church, and they're all a member of that. And then there's the one that meets on the corner like we are tonight or has a meeting place in a location. And we come together and we call that the church, though the word church technically means building. Assembly is the right word. So we're an assembly of saints. But a lot of people's attitude is that it's not really a big deal to be an active member in a local assembly because as long as you belong to the big church, the one you can't see that's unidentified, you're all right. And the harm that's done with that through the years has resulted in a very shallow attitude towards church. And you'd have to admit, maybe it's not true with you, but you'd have to admit there are a lot of people who have a really shallow attitude towards a local assembly. It's good to belong to one. It's not necessary. Not, it's not vital. 
it's not a necessity. It's a good thing to do. I mean, church is for a reason. It makes you socially better. You know, you learn to do good, feed the poor, help the, this one and contribute to that, ring the bell, whatever you do to do good in the community. And the church is really a social organization to most people that is supposed to do good and let people see that Jesus has affected your life in this way. And, but as far as getting involved and active and learning and studying and growing and getting deep, in, it's not necessary. And a lot of churches really do promote that, that as long as you're a member, you've joined us, even though you're not here and active, you'll still go to heaven because remember, your membership is in the bigger church, the one that we can't define. And those who say they belong to such a church, I was wondering how in the world would they attend it? Where is it? I'd like to be a part of it. Well, we're all a part of that big church. Are we really? If the church consists of parts that make up a body, you know, fingers, arms, limbs, legs, and so forth, then what am I where? And really, it comes down to I'm not a part of something out there. When God saved me, he put me something not only that's local, but that's visible and seeable and a place where a lot of good things can happen for me. But if I don't believe in the necessity of a local church or that God would actually put me in one, then I will treat this with indifference. I'll come if I want to. If other things come up, it's no big deal to miss because I'm not that committed to it. Another thing that happens is that, that there is an indifference to your responsibilities of a church, to the local church, if you believe you're committed to the big one. And so through the years, Christian people, except for the few, there's always the, the, you know, the ones that are different, the ones that are right. The church has had its problem with getting people to be responsible, to be active and to contribute and help and, and to work and do the things that they ought to do. It's just been a difficult thing in a lot of places. Churches have to design programs and inspirational things to get people to come and then stay coming. It should never be like that. And I believe when a man is born again, I believe God puts him somewhere. We all belong somewhere. Again, if you're the big church, not the small church, you can't do much about church discipline. Because you can't say, well, if you put you out of here because of drinking, fighting, carousing, running around, living with somebody, living just the opposite of what the church should stand for. You can't come here. You're not welcome here. Or if they insist, you mark them as, as they said in, in Romans, mark those who cause divisions and put them out. That means nothing today. That means absolutely nothing because when you put me out here, I'll go to another one down here. And there's a lot of them. And besides, you can't put me out of the kingdom. And so it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any effect upon the disciplined person because their attitude of the church is that there's two churches. And I'm in the big one and the little one is just okay. And it also has a problem, that attitude that Luther gave us also gave us a problem with our attitude towards local leadership. Everybody likes preacher jokes. I heard a lot of them, told a few myself. Truth be known, I probably have had more trouble with preachers than any of y'all. But being as I are one, I know that sometimes there are people who go out of their way to thank you, and there's people who, who don't care at all because it's not important. But Jesus said, I will build my church. 
And whatever he meant by his assembly, it means it's personally his. Now, I want to learn what that means. I want to be a part of that. Now, I have, we have, we taught on this. I realize that it's been 11 years since we've actually taught on the church. But having taught on it and being reminded of some things that are said, some theological things about the church, Lord, I thank you for your church. I thank God for his church and that he's let me be a part of it. Let me give you a few reasons why tonight. Number one, because the church is God's provision for my growth. Well, you said he gave you the word, didn't he? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, he gave me all of that. But I'll tell you what, there's a whole lot about the Bible, even though I read it, I don't fully understand it. And the Holy Spirit doesn't make me understand some things that I need to study, but he will confirm what I'm hearing if it's not right. It's that kind of an unction that in 1 John 2, that's in a believer. But I remember when I first got saved, the, this was just my experience, and you've heard it many times. But when I first came to the Lord, I was 28 years old. My hair was brown and all of that, a basketball coach, school teacher. Everything I thought I was just dedicated to and interested in prior to that, which was myself, everything began to pale in light of the fact when I pick up the Bible to read it, it just seemed to make sense. I didn't understand it fully, and therefore I wanted to know more about it. Like, now I read that, I like that, but what does that actually mean? Why would he say that? And these inquisitive things about the church, I want to know what it means. There's a desire in my heart anyway to get to the bottom of a verse or a passage of scripture or a particular truth and study it and know what it means. Because it's obviously important if it's in the Bible, and therefore I want to know what it says. And so the church that I grew up in, in the Christian church, and when I got saved, I went back to the same church because I remember growing up, church is what you did. My daddy was a Catholic and he went and did his thing and my mother was a Christian church or a Protestant. And we did that. I don't remember it ever meaning anything. And if I ever learned anything there, I tried to remember today, what did I actually learn growing up? I don't know. I really don't remember. So I guess that's why it was easy to learn because I didn't have anything to unlearn. But there was something about the next time I went to church after I got saved of listening more to what the preacher said than I ever did before. I used to listen to the clock tick on the wall. Because that would remind me that he only has about 10 more minutes and then we're getting out of here. And Mrs. Cartwright's going to get on that seat on that organ and we're going to go. He can still preach if he wants to, but we're going home in a minute because that's the tradition of our church. But things changed. I wanted to know what he said. And if I didn't understand what he said, I made a point to go to his office and ask him because I wanted to learn. There was nowhere else I knew of in my life to go. If Bonnie and I had lived in some place and we got saved in some wonderful way and there was no church there or nobody I could talk to, I'm sure God would have provided my particular need, but I don't know what I would have done. Who would I talk to? Who would teach me? Who, like that Ethiopian said in the book of Acts, he said, I don't know what this means. Who's going to show it to me? And, of course, Philip got up in the chariot with him and explained it to him, and the man got saved. See, God has provisions in the church. God has given gifts to the church. 
gifts and forms of people. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the sake of the church, that we may grow up into him in all things. If we didn't need to grow, he wouldn't have put the provision for growing. If he put the provisions for our growth in the church, then we need to grow. We cannot stay as we are. There's information God wants us to access. There's things he wants us to learn and then things he wants us to put to practice because that's when the Holy Spirit comes in. He not only confirms what you're hearing, whets your appetite for more of it, but he also urges you to do things and urges you to practice what you've been hearing and, and live on, on that kind of a level. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 11, this is, this is what Paul wrote. I just quoted some of it, but in Ephesians 4 and verse 11, this is to his church. He said in verse 4, there is one body and so forth. And he gave some, verse 11, he gave some apostles and he gave some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Not everybody in the church is an apostle or a prophet, an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. But God equips men, people just like us. Maybe that's why it's so hard for us to receive from them because we view people much as we view ourselves. You know, we're all flawed in some way. Nobody's perfect. A man, a preacher can say something and you might be thinking, well, what makes you so right? You know, I am sure, I am sure that in the days of Jesus, when a human being who looked just like everybody else looked, same size, the same stature, same color of hair, the same kind of beard, whatever he had, walked the same streets, spoke the same language as everybody else. I am sure it was difficult for anybody to see this as God in the flesh. And I'm sure there was a lot of skepticism. Like Thomas, it didn't turn Jesus off. I mean, he, he knew that. He knew what was in man. And it would be difficult. And it is today that God's gifts to the church to teach us are not always outstanding human figures. Sometimes they're just plain vanilla preachers. I didn't go to seminary. I haven't had that kind of an education. I'm not against it because there's a lot of things I could have learned there that I'm sure would help me, if not from the pulpit, to help me personally. But me and school were like acid and water. I never liked school. Didn't like to go to class when I was in college. And then I wound up being a school teacher. I, didn't, I don't know either. I don't know either. But I know that these men who were just ordinary men were often viewed as less than respected people because they look like us, they sound like us, they talk like us, and they're making a point they say is right, and they're trying to tell me this is the way I'm supposed to live. And a lot of people are like that. But anyway, he goes on to say in verse 12, the purpose and the reason for giving these gifts is for my growth. Listen, this is what they do for me. For the perfecting of the saints, that word perfecting means to put in right working order. It means to put us the way we should be, to take something that's out of order and make it in order. I need that. Now, without them, I can't do that. I can only be in name a Christian going here and there and drifting around the world like a cruise-o-matic. But this isn't going to happen because this is local stuff. 
He said, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministering, that's serving, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ, a contribution all of us can make. We don't know that. We learn that. They teach us this. And this is a process that's going to take place, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. The word perfect there would more imply a completed man, having fully arrived at the place that God is bringing us, which is unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Is that possible? We sang the song, to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. And you know, in your humanity, you wonder, can that be possible in the days of my flesh? In a human body, flawed as it is, weak as it seems to be when it comes against this or that, can I actually, by a process that God has started in me, can it really end up with me being without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing? That is one of the main major functions of the church. It's God sending newborn saints who are full of problems, full of difficulties, putting them in a body, and then not only revealing their difficulties and their flaws, but showing them how to deal with it. How do you get that if you're just drifting around and you have nothing else? Now, I know there's a lot of people can't be in a church. I know there are people that, that are handicapped or they're married to somebody that cannot leave. Most of them are not in the body because of money. But there's a lot of reasons that people give why they are not a member and an active contributing member of a local assembly. But God made it local and he made it his assembly for a reason. It's his church. And what his church does, I need it. And because I think to some degree it's happening for me now here, I thank the Lord for it. I know there's a lot more than what we've got. Somebody asked me once, said, you think you're the only church? I said, heavens no. I believe there are churches in this country that would make us bow our head and weep. They're so advanced, probably so committed and dedicated. So no, I don't think we're any more than a bunch of lost souls that got saved. And we brought together. Some are trying, some are not. But that's going to be anyway. That's what the Bible said. There will be in this church wheat and tares. I'm not saying you're tares. I'm not even saying you're wheat. I'm just saying that in a church, there's going to be the right and the not right. But you can be what God tells you to be if you want it. It's being made available to us, and there it is. And he said, this process is going to take place until we all come into such a way that we measure up to who Christ is. The measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. And in verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, and here it is again, may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from which, and then back to what we're talking about, from which the whole body fitly joined together 
and compacted by that which every joint supplies, that's each contribution, each of us, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, that's us, this is what's going to make the increase of the body and to the edifying of itself in love. There's a lot said there. But it essentially comes down to the fact that God's going to do a work in us. We're going to aid and assist each other. We'll become a very important part of each other's lives in the local church. It'll be one of the ways we identify ourselves. It'll be one of the ways we qualify ourselves as being true saints, how we relate to each other, whether or not we esteem others better than ourselves, whether or not I care about how you're doing and what's going on in your life, whether I pray about you or speak to you, or if you see a brother overtaken in the fault, they who are spiritual, go to that brother. Remember that in Galatians 6? It's like we have a care for each other. God didn't put me where I wanted to go. I doubt if I'd have come here. But he brought me here. Thank God for his wisdom because I'm glad I am here. And the things that I have learned from the people that I am with has been wonderful. But the whole function of the church essentially is to feed the people, give them food. He said in Acts 20 to the elders at Ephesus, he said, feed the church of God. The church is a place to be fed. It is a place God has made provisions to feed. And we all need that. And I thank the Lord tonight for his church. I'm so glad I'm not drifting around so dissatisfied and in turmoil about my spiritual needs, the itch that's not getting scratched. I'm glad that something is being fulfilled and being blessed in my life. God is teaching and feeding. And all the things that go with teaching and learning, the correction and the other things, he's doing that. Amen. A second thing that I am thankful for the Lord for is fellowship. Fellowship. I found that after I got saved, back a hundred years ago when I got saved, 44 years ago, when I came to the Lord, 45 years ago. Has it been that long? 45 years. Been a long time. Wow. I found that the people I grew up with could not relate to the experience I just had. I had just met the Lord on June 30th, 1968. My thrill was to read, and anybody else, anybody else like this? Praise God. I couldn't say praise God very loud. That would embarrass me. I wouldn't do this. That would embarrass me. And I wouldn't stop very many people I knew and witness to them because that would be embarrassing because I'd never done that and I didn't feel like I should. And, you know, I'm a hypocrite. So a lot of things that I learned to do, I didn't do right away because I, was, I needed to be taught. I remember in fellowshipping that we'd go to church and after church is over, you'd run into a few people and that you saw go forward that same Sunday you did and how you're doing. I've been, I have too, praise the Lord. Hey, one of them said, let's get together in the pastor's office Tuesday night or Thursday, whatever the night was. And I remember one of the men, and there are two older men, and myself, a man named Chuck Clayton, and then Donnie Van Pelt, and there's one other guy, and these two older men. One of them said, why don't you share something with us? He said that to me. And I said, what would I share? 
Oh, you get something, you know. And I remember we went to preacher's office sitting. I still remember, it's just like it happened. I'm sitting here by the door and Chuck was sitting right here and that fellow that wanted to do all this was sitting here and Donnie Benepet was over there. And we're sitting in that room and I opened up the Bible to James chapter five about prayer. And I remember as the words came out, we would stop it every now and then and talk. And we start discussing. Everybody was just chattering like, you know, little high school kids just yakking away. That was the most new thing I could remember. I had never felt like this before in my life. I'd been some kind of a, a vulgar person my whole life, and here I am in church, fresh out of hell, just talking about the Lord. It's still hard to say Jesus in front of other people. It's just say the Lord. And we talked and chattered, and I learned a few things. I'd go home, and I'd start studying and reading. I think, man, I got to go to bed. I got to go to school tomorrow. It's two o'clock in the morning. I thought, man, I, I, just a little bit more. And there was something that was good. And we, and the reason I think I studied is so I could share with others. We even found Thayer's Greek lexicon. It was hard to use because it didn't have numbers beside the the words. I remember writing the Greek alphabet in the front cover of this book. I, I don't know all the Greek names, but I, I know what they are. I know what letters, what. And so it took me a while. I had to learn how to do that, but I found words, and we started talking about the Greek language. Somebody found a book on Hebrew words. Well, next thing you know, we're buying books. And we're buying books because in the process of fellowshipping with each other and sharing what the Lord was doing and saying, it was just exciting. It was just right. It was a thing you did. How would I have found that with nobody else? Well, maybe Bonnie and I would have talked. Sure, we would. But how would I know? How would that have ever come about without being somewhere, especially in New Testament sense, somebody to teach me, somebody to help guide me along the way and, and me and like-minded believers talking, sharing, even got to the place where I could say Jesus around these guys and talk about Jesus and about your feelings, about what you heard and what the Lord you believe is saying to you. And I wasn't embarrassed by it because we were all like-minded and all of us were new. The fellowship was vital. Then we got to inviting each other over. And then it got to be where we were in somebody's house all the time. I mean, it was just somebody somewhere all the time. I know this sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I remember when school was out, basketball season was over, I used to drive to town. I lived in Henryville, which was that way from school, and I'd go this way to town and go to a preacher's office just so I could talk to him a while about, about the Bible. And uh, he told me, he said, you know, I, my life was real peaceful around here until everybody got saved. I remember him telling him once, he said, you know, I didn't have to explain anything, didn't have to get it right. He said, now they come to church with dictionaries and taking notes and if want to know what I meant by this or that. He said, now I have to study. And I think John got saved during those days. He said, I don't think he ever was, but I think he did. It was a wonderful time in my life, and it was encouraged by fellowship. Talking to people about your experience, sharing with other people what the Lord had said to you and how he had done things for you. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11, just sharing with other people what the Lord had done and what the Lord was saying to you. 
going to other churches and giving your testimony. I did that a lot. And the first things I did outside of our church was go to other churches and share with them what the Lord had done for me. I wasn't always good at that, wasn't always comfortable with it, but it, it worked out. It just came to pass. And then there was a thing called a lay witness mission that came up when churches would invite couples to come to their church, or if you weren't married a single person, to spend the weekend with their congregation at that church. And we'd meet on Saturday and we would testify. We stayed in homes and we'd get together during the day and testify and fellowship and talk. I don't think I ever went to one of those or any of our people that in those days ever went to a lay witness mission in which there wasn't a number of people that came to the Lord. You know why? Because they sat around in fellowship with ordinary people. We weren't preachers. It wouldn't have been a good atmosphere for a preacher because you expect preachers to talk this way. But just normal people, a basketball coach, a factory worker, a tool and die maker, a retired soul over here, talking about their experience with the Lord and then sitting around answering questions and fellowship. And you could see the interest of people begin to really pike up because I remember when I did, I thought, boy, I need that, but I'm, I don't know how to get it. And I don't know how I would ever live the Christian life in my hometown, especially as a basketball coach, as honorary as I've been out there for a year at the school. I don't know how in the world I could ever have some life-changing experience and go back out there and be a different person. I don't know how that worked, but I learned because that's exactly the way it worked for me. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11. Wherefore, comfort yourself or encourage yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also do. And we beseech you, brethren, here in Shelby Town, to know them which labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, the patient. See, it's fellowship. It's us and us sharing, helping, edifying, encouraging, whatever we can do to make ourselves strong. But that's what he said in Ephesians 4 would happen in a real local assembly. And so we start out with learning and being taught. And God made a provision for our protection. And then God also made a provision for correction or discipline in the church because there's never been a time in history. Anytime something good starts, anytime something good begins to emerge or come forth, boy, the devil is always there waiting for an opportunity to stop it. I've never in my life, wherever it's happened, it's never failed to happen. What Paul warned the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, he said, I know this, that after my departure, Grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Remember that? And we sat there and we look around at everybody here and say, how could that be? And yet it happens. Some ambitious soul begins to draw away disciples or tries to, or they hear things that makes them question the preacher and then you begin to get critical. And this, it happens in an atmosphere that where that never had been before. And suddenly things begin to happen. Now, in a local assembly, God puts leadership there, which obviously realizes their responsibility as an overseer is to watch over the sheep. Not only to feed the sheep, 
and to manage the sheep and keep them out of their squabbles. But if you got a troublemaker in there, it's his responsibility to deal with it. And I think there's a certain amount of comfort that people in that kind of a church would have that if somebody rose up and tried to take over, uh, he would stop it. And you have to do that. It's not fun. It never was fun. It wasn't meant to be fun. Fun's not even in the Bible. But necessity requires it. Because if you let somebody get loose and start spreading stuff, next thing you know, people, and people are like sheep. They're vulnerable. There's always somebody that'll believe anything new. It seems like that'll never go away either. Always something new, they'll believe it. And they begin to question what you taught. They'll write you notes. I've got, I used to have, I don't know if I burn them all or not, but write you all these notes about that and so forth. But God puts order and correction in the assembly because if we don't, we'll have chaos. Paul wrote this. He said, mark them which cause divisions among you. And he says, an offense is contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And he said, avoid them. Mark them. Point them out. Those that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And avoid them. I remember once in private, I did that. Somebody spoke and spoke. Part of what they said was good. And one side, side one. And side two was mildly refuting of what I had taught. And uh, I didn't like that. I, I told them I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate that. And they're not going to do it again. Not here, they're not. Because I felt like that only breeds confusion. Now, men of God will never do that. Because our purpose is not to make a name for ourselves or gain a following. But it's to feed the sheep and make disciples. That's what we're called to do. And sometimes when you have to deal with things that you have to deal with, well, you just have to deal with it. Like he said, you're not far from it where you were in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. Your Bible says, for of this sort, those that are causing trouble and without godly trace in their lives, you know, they're, well, all of those things. He said in verse 2 through 5, he said, for of this sort... Are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins and led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth? These are men of corrupt minds, all of these kind of things. He said, these are the kind of people you avoid. These are the kind of people you have to release from your assembly because this is the way it is. 2 Thessalonians 2, in light of what I said, that would go with this, but he said in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that what? That's hard for us to do because we don't feel loving when we do that. We feel like that love ignores sin. But he says, we command you to withdraw yourself from every brother that walks disorderly. Not orderly, not the way they've been taught, and not after the tradition which you received of us. In verse 14, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. That's pretty narrow. But if you're going to keep the church clean and free from turmoil, this is what you have to do. 
Not that Christians will do that, because again, we think that love, love just turns its head when sin comes along. We never say what needs to be said to people that are wrong. Somebody is committing sin, living in sin, living with somebody, drinking, carousing, whatever it is, and you know that's not right. The Bible said you have a responsibility, number one, to go to that person, and secondly, to withdraw fellowship from that person. If they say, come on, let's go somewhere, it's not, I can't go with you. Why? Well, because of the way you act. Well, who are you judging me? Well, I guess I am. I guess I am. I'm just trying to obey the Lord. I'd rather have the favor of God than your favor. I don't know if that's happened very often. It has happened down through history. Because the church is not always the place where real popular people are, but godliness demands commitment and devotion to God and his way. It has to be that way. Another reason that I am thankful tonight for the Lord and his church is because God has put there a way for me to be protected, like from error, from false teaching. I don't know what's going on out there if I'm sitting in here. Responsibility of the teacher is to know. Who in here has as much time to study as I do? Nobody. I don't have any other job. I can devote all of my time to what I'm doing. I should, therefore, know some things that you probably don't know, but it's my responsibility to find out and tell you, then we know the same thing. And if there's stuff going on around the country, I often hear reports of, you know, with the media today and the electronic age, you can find out a whole lot of just about whatever you want. And you hear rumors and you hear this new movement going on and, Boy, they're having a real movement, a real outpouring. And I've heard this so many years. I mean, there's an outpouring here, and boy, there's an outpouring here, and this is happening, and that's happening. And here we are 30 years later, and every one of them died and have gone into history. They just disappeared. What was that? It was nothing. Turned out to be nothing. Now, if you stand in the pulpit and say, don't pay attention to that, that's nothing. Oh, how can you say that? Brother Hamlet, they're barking like dogs down there. Well, I guarantee you that's not right. I cannot imagine in the midst of a serious or a sobering moment in the church, somebody start barking. Phew, I think you ought to go outside and chain them up. That's what I think you ought to do. Merciful goodness. And yet people were taught that that's spiritual. That's a manifestation of the Spirit of God. It's a manifestation of a spirit. It's just not the manifestation of the Spirit of God. It's something that calls attention to man, not to God. Consequently, I like the idea of the fact that God puts in the church knowing people who alert us to these things or brothers, they don't have to be preachers, just who have learned things, found out things, share things, and then we teach on these things to teach you how to avoid things. If any man says this and works a miracle or has a dream or a vision and it comes to pass, but what he's teaching is not God, it's not right, have nothing to do with it. One of the movements back in the late 1980s, 89, 90, until 1993 or 4 was this prophetic movement. And there was this great display in their writings about this particular prophet how much he's of God and all oh, this man and his background and all the miracles and oh boy. You hear something like that from people you know. 
you think, well, how can I hear what this guy said? Oh, I got a tape, boy. This you like, woo-wee. So you get the tape thinking, you put it in your car, and you're driving down the road. Now, I, I listen from a, to sensational things like this. I have to admit, I'm a little bit like that. Now, you're going to have to show me something because I've heard a thousand men like you in my life. I've seen them come and I've seen them go. I've seen people follow that stuff and get so disappointed that they couldn't regroup and get back and now they're gone. But that's what the devil does. Seducing spirits and doctrines of demons look for that person who is vulnerable, who's a candidate to be deceived. They look for that person who doesn't pay attention but is emotional. And they have their way with them. But I listened to this guy on my tape, and he didn't say much. He made a wisecrack about faith. Oh, I forgot, you faith people don't take aspirin. I remember turning it off. I thought, that's it. You messed up. Because, you know, when you start talking against the one essential thing I have, the thing that Jesus is looking for when he comes back, Jesus said, when he returns, will he find faith? You make light of it, I won't have it. Because it's not necessary, it's not a big deal. What's a big deal are your visions and your dreams and your forecast. If somebody doesn't tell us things like that and alert us to this kind of stuff, somebody will follow it. And yet, I remember Zion Lake one summer was talking about this laughing revival, laughing and barking and whatever else that crazy, foolish stuff that people were doing, calling it God. And I made a remark about that. A lady, after the service was over, she, was, she had tears in her eyes. I knew her. I mean, I knew her. I, I knew who she was. And she was 212. I mean, she was bowling, buddy. Who do you think you are? I can't believe I've listened to you all these years and, you, and blah, blah, blah. And now she was nominal when I knew her, just sort of, you know, Nothing really exciting. She wasn't really all that committed. Or, you know, it's kind of sit there, you know. And all of a sudden, she got to bark, and now she's had an experience that you better say it's all right. And I said, it's not all right. And, oh, she was hostile. Hostile. I don't think she turned out well today. I think it just kept getting worse until she just drifted off. I won't go into all the details. You don't know her. It wouldn't be necessary anyway. But she didn't do so well. Could it be that she picked up a spirit? Could it be that an evil spirit, a demon, the call in the Bible, had access to her because she opened herself up to it? Listen to me, all of you. Anything that is not of God or inspired of God is inspired of the devil. And God would call it evil because if it's not of God, it's not good. See, we wouldn't call things that are evil, evil, because it doesn't sound loving. If they speak not according to this word, he said they have no light. Is that evil? See, you can't say it now. Some of you can. But it is evil. Because it's not of God. It wasn't inspired of God. It contributes nothing to make you more the way God wants you to be. Nothing. It's not of God. God doesn't use evil to make good. He doesn't do that. So, back to where we started... A minister has to know something. In the time you have to study and to seek, you do this mostly on the behalf of people, not just get a sermon up so you can preach another sermon. I preached a lot of them. 
But you begin to think about what do they need to hear? What needs to be emphasized? And six times out of 10, we've already said that twice. Well, apparently I need to say it again. So I'll keep saying it until we get the all, two old beef patties, special sauce, ladies, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. We'll get that down pat and then we'll know it. But there are people in the pulpit that are not here for money. They're not doing it for fame. They're not doing it because they get some kind of an advantage over people or people give them favors. They do it because it's a call. It's a call and a grave responsibility. So grave is it that the Bible says you who teach, your judgment will be greater than the others. Because if you mislead people and they go astray, God will have to judge that because of what you taught. So what you teach when you stand in a pulpit or you share with people and you're going to teach and open up the book of life to somebody, you better get it right or else at least be honest about what you're saying. We all need to be correct, and we've had to change some views and theology along the way, but we didn't knowingly mislead people because I don't know what is more sacred to God than his word. He honors his word even above his name. Psalms 138 and verse 2. I mean, even above his name. And so it's a passion, it's a commitment, it's a call. It's called to make disciples, to protect them, to feed them, to lead them, and to guide them. You preachers in here, that's a sermon. But it's what you're going to do. Now, I am glad. I, I praise the Lord that I've not only been in a body like that, but I am in one now, even though what I'm doing is what I'm doing. What if I told you that sometimes I say things that I never knew and I taught myself? That don't sound right, does it? But it's true. I've said things before and maybe going home, Bonnie would say, you know, I never heard that before. And I think, me neither. But if I say, well, I haven't either, then she'll think I'm real spiritual or something. I better leave it alone. But, you know, there's a lot of things that God says to all of us. But God puts a premium on what we're doing right now. Is the church is not here to to feed the world and to help all the needy people that need to be helped. Our call, our mission, first of all, is ourselves. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. This is first. Then, of course, we help whoever we can. You know, all of you that have donated for these men to go on these missionary journeys and help pay their expenses so they can go down there and do what God gave them to do with our help. We're part of that. Uh, your money's preaching. Can you imagine a $5 bill saying you need to be saved? Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, look at verse 17. This doesn't sound right coming from me, but it's in the Bible, so let's say it. Obey them that have the rule over you. Rule means the oversight, the responsibility to oversee and to do all the things that need to be done so that everything can be done decently and, and in order. So obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. How many people do not belong to a local assembly, therefore do not have this? Think of it. 
They're just drifting around. It's never been important. They try to find one they can go to that suits them without really, Lord, where do you want me to go? Show me, witness in my heart, some way confirm where I should be. But he said, obey them that have the oversight of your life. And he told Timothy, said, you take the oversight of people willingly, not by constraint. That's eh, a job I got to do. They're paying me to do it. No, they're not paying you. You're not hired to do this. They don't pay you to preach. You're not doing it for any reason other than the fact that God gave you this to do, and you're doing it because you love the Lord. And through you, the Lord will love his people. So he said, you do that that way. And he said, verse 17, and submit yourselves in for they watch for your souls as whom? They must give an account. Let me ask you a question. I know you know the answer. If I have to give an account for those who are here, I don't mean somebody come and go. I mean those who, who are here. Am I responsible to give an account to God for them? What if I see something wrong, but I don't deal with it, I let it go. Am I wrong? I am. Am I popular if I deal with it? Get out of my life. You don't have any right here. Well, I'm sorry, but I do. Sometimes, not always. Some things are none of my business. But I'm just saying that we have a responsibility to give an account for people's souls. Look at verse 6 and 7. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me, because I have somebody that's watching over me to protect me from men as well as the Lord. Verse 7, remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Then they have to have faith, don't they? And if I sit under somebody like that, I'm going to learn. Well, amen anyhow, because he said, considering the end of their manner of life or their behavior, the way they live. It's like an object lesson. I think he said this, be not slothful, but followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It'd be hard to preach on the promises if you weren't actively receiving them. If God wasn't blessing me like that, it'd be difficult for me to preach that. But that's part of the job. If you're going to qualify to do this, and this is part of it. And then finally... It's a proving ground for ministry. The church. Thank you, Lord, for your church. This is where I qualify myself. I grow up here. You grow up here in the midst of us. If we come together, you don't have to grow up here. You can be grown. We come together. We meet together. It doesn't take us long to find out who's like what, who is and who isn't, who wants to and who doesn't want to, who tries and who doesn't, who's dragging their feet and who's not. It doesn't take long to find out who's really blessed and gifted and wants more of the Lord and who's satisfied with what they got. It doesn't take long. But when it comes time for somebody to be sent forth from the church to represent this church somewhere else, maybe a foreign country as a missionary or on a missionary journey, it wouldn't be right for us to send some half-hearted soul out of here. Would it? It wouldn't be right to send somebody here whose theology is questionable. How would we know what your theology is? We've, you've been around us long enough, we'll learn. 
You'll have chances to say things and do things. Your life will be lived before all of us. We'll know something about you. Have you ever heard somebody want to tell you something about the Lord and you think, great, who are you to tell me anything? Your life is, a, is whacked up. I'm not saying that what you're saying is not true, but you need to practice what you preach yourself. How would you know that about a person unless you lived around them? Are you here? This is where we prove ourselves. I mean, if you can't live it here, don't think you can take it to some missionary field and take it there. All you're going to do is breed difficulty where you go or take difficulty where you're going. See, this is where we demonstrate what's in our heart. It's easy when somebody's life is the way God wants it to be. They're in good standing, not only here, but outside of here in, in the town. With their good report amongst everybody. It's easy to be able to say, you know, we, we bless you and send you forth in representing us in Jesus' name. Go and be blessed and bring back a good report. And they usually do. I don't know when they have it. But you see, you're not qualified to go just because you read a Bible, because you go to church or been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and, and you can quote the Bible. We look at your life. Your life qualifies you. And that's why it takes a while to prove yourselves. Because a stranger walked in here and said, I'm a prophet. How do I know he's a prophet? He wanted to walk in here and prophesy to me. I say, we don't need you to prophesy here. We don't know who you are. That lady you're with, is that your wife or your secretary? We don't know. Listen, I had them come along. Bonnie and I both, we remember one that came along once. He has the most moving speaker at the time I think I'd ever heard. He had me on the edge of my chair, and this guy was an adulterer. I mean, he tried to make a play for one of the single ladies in our church that night. She had an unlisted number, and he called her, said the Lord showed him. I don't doubt the devil showed him that. And everybody just going, oh, man. We told the preacher, said, John, this guy's an outlaw. And he was mad at us. So I guess he thought that girl was a liar. I've seen that happen. Another man running around the country, you know, with the same way. And we called a major ministry once about a guy. And they said, that guy is no good. And we said, thank you. We didn't think he was. But you tell people he's no good. You, you all are terrible people. You're judgmental. And we're trying to spare you from things that are coming. See, a man has to prove himself. If somebody wanted to come here and speak, and I said to him, well, who's your pastor? Where, what church are you coming from? Most of them that I have known in my life would say, I don't, I, don't, uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I remember the one they talked to an older lady down in Florida out of her car, had that yellow Cadillac across the line, headed for Georgia when the police stopped him, made him turn around and take that car back and give it to that woman. This guy was a smooth talker, too. I knew him personally. I was out in Montana once at an oil field preaching at Bell Creek, Montana, staying in a trailer with a, a couple there. And that day and during the day, <clears throat> this wife and another lady were talking about this same guy, how good he was. And I thought, you know, I can't sit here and listen to this. And I said, did you all know that this guy, and I mentioned a couple, of, and they said they were hot. Well, I can't believe you would say that. 
you don't even know if that's true. I said, well, I do know it's true. Well, I don't believe that. They don't want to believe it. I mean, they just don't want to believe it. But a lot of men that are traveling around this country don't come from a body where they've proven themselves to be reliable and clean. They just took up a message and took off running around a country wanting people to listen to them. I don't think I care to listen to anybody unless it's some meeting in a big stage and you had to go with somebody. I don't think I'd be interested to go anywhere to listen to somebody that had no background. I don't. Doesn't belong to a church, doesn't function in church, has no pastor to confirm his ministry. Well, why would I want him here? First John 2, you're all the way back in the back now, next to Revelation. First John 2 and verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Were they sent? No, they just went. I'm going to go out and preach the gospel. Now, wait a minute. Prove to us you know what you're talking about. Oh, no, 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 I don't have time for that. I'm going to go preach the gospel. I'm gone. Bye. What if a church called me up and said, uh, so-and-so said he came from your church. Can you recommend him? I, I'd have to say no. Oh, he's been here. He's been a part of our church. But I would not recommend him because he really hasn't proven himself yet to be reliable and faithful and stable. I mean, he's like a flash in the pan. He even, no, I wouldn't. I don't know what he does with money, how he would handle that or how he would talk about that. I don't know how he is with the ladies and outside of our church. I wouldn't trust him. If we can't send them out, we can't approve of them. We're not their enemies. I'm not his adversary but I certainly can't stand with him and what he's doing if he's never proven himself. And God has given the church as one of the ways we demonstrate our faith, our reliability, our stability, our beliefs, our call right here. And how many of you know that if one of our people have a gift, a kind of a special thing, we'll know it. We'll know it. Anybody, doesn't have to be young, but anybody. If you've got something special from the Lord and we can feed on it, we'll know it. And if it continues to prove itself, we approve of it. And it's easy to submit yourself to somebody you know is honest and upright and honest and stable. Amen. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, ask you to bless your word to your people. We give you thanks for the church. We give you thanks for the opportunity you've given us to be a part of a body. Imperfect though we may be, we believe that you're going to continue to refine us and make us the way we should be and help us to be that place where you can send lost souls, new saved souls, newly saved. You can send them here, Lord, and we'll care for them. For the privilege and for the reality of it, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.